Good morning. Good morning. Genesis chapter 22. Finally. Oh, church, what a passage we have this morning. We are on hallowed ground here. God's word is wonderful. God is wonderful. And if you cannot see it here, uh, well, you are not alive. So start praying now that God would give us eyes to see his glory in Genesis 22 and that God would give me the ability to glorify him through the preaching of this beautiful passage. Charles Spurgeon said of the great English Baptist minister F.B. Meyer that he preaches as a man who has seen God face to face. I want to preach like that. But listen to what Meyer, what that man says about this passage. So long as men live in this world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. There is only one scene in history by which it is surpassed. That where the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance. And that's, that's where we're going. There's just there's so much gospel goodness here. Jesus says in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Surely what Abraham sees in Genesis 22 was a key part of that seeing. You could argue that this is the end of the Abraham story. Right? There's a little bit more to come. I was trying to decide, do we stop here or not? I'm not we're going to keep going to 25. But everything else after this is wrapping things up and is transitioning the focus to Isaac. This is the climax that we have been building toward all along, and it too focuses and revolves around Isaac. Or it focuses on Abraham's relationship with Isaac in comparison to Abraham's relationship with God. You see, we know from the beginning, and we're told from the beginning, that Genesis 22 is a test. Very first verse. Uh, It's a test of love. It's a test of loyalty. It's a test of worship. A demonstration of Abraham's faith and a demonstration of God's grace. Those are three pretty important terms. Worship, faith, grace. I could define Christianity with those three terms. Worship, faith, grace. But could you define those three terms? Worship, faith, and grace. You know I'm a definitions guy. I love words. Words are my work. But we should all love words. Christians should and must love words because we love the God of words. The God who speaks. The God who reveals himself first and foremost through his son Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. So words matter. And when we come to words so central to Christianity, worship, faith, grace, we must be able to define these these terms and understand what they really mean. As it has been said before, it doesn't matter if we're using the same vocabulary, but we're using a different dictionary. The world often means different things with its words. The world's understanding of love and justice and good and beauty and gender even, and on and on, are completely different than God's. So we need these words, and we need to know how God's word defines these words. Genesis 2, 22 gives us a wonderful look at worship, faith, and grace. And Moses has been preparing us for this moment since all the way back in chapter 11, verse 30, when we read, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, was barren. She had no child. Then in chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. God calls Abraham. God makes grand and glorious promises to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But how could a great many people come from Abraham when one person hasn't even come from Abraham? Uh, How could he have a nation if he didn't even have a son? Genesis 17, more promises. I will bless Sarah and I will give you a son by her. Genesis 15, your very own son shall be your heir. Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. What? Isaac is everything. Isaac is what Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for and longing for these 25 long years. He's been, he's been the whole point of the story. He is the thing that God has been doing. He is the point of the promises. He is the blessing. He is the one through whom the world is going to be blessed. God has promised Isaac. God has delivered Isaac. God says, kill Isaac. Sacrifice Isaac. What? Why would God give Abraham a son and then tell Abraham to kill that son? And how in the world could God command such a thing? Why in the world would God command such a thing? Well, that's what we want to sort out this morning. I'm not going to answer it right now. Hopefully, I'll be able to as we work through the text. But kind of here's your question to start with. Who do you love? Who do you love? That's what I hope to help you answer this morning. That's the question that God is helping Abraham to answer. Who do you love and how can you tell? Well, we're going to see that ultimately you, you worship what you love. What does that mean? There's one of those words. What does that really mean? Well, point number one, I want us to see that worship is sacrifice. We have to re-kind of focus our understanding of the nature of worship. Well, what, who do you believe? Who do you trust? Well, you're going to end up putting your faith in what you love. Well, what does that term mean? Point number two, I want us to see that faith is obedience. I'm putting it that way on purpose. Slightly provocative. I'll, I'll explain. Faith is obedience. But then why should the God of Genesis chapter 22 be the only one you love through sacrificial worship and obedient faith. Well, it's because he's the God of grace. Point number three, I want us to see that grace is provision of substitutionary sacrifice. You'll see in your outline in the bulletin, it says substitutionary death. I changed it after I sent it to VJ and I was going back through it last night. I want us to see the point one, worship is sacrifice, connection to the point three, grace is substitutionary sacrifice. So substitutionary Death, sacrifice, same thing. But I want us to see the sacrifice, sacrifice connection. So worship is sacrifice, faith is obedience, and that's because God's grace is substitutionary sacrifice. Who do you love? How can you tell? Are you a Christian? How can you tell? A Christian is simply a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God will obediently sacrifice everything to God in response to God's provision of the substitutionary sacrifice of his son. That's kind of what we want to try to unpack this morning. But let me read the text. This is such a wonderful text. This is masterfully written. Uh, pay attention. I wish I could read it in a way that does it justice. Uh, we're going to go only through verse 14. We just don't have time to do the whole thing. So I'm going to read for you Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, please pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both went, so both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord, Yahweh, will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. If you would, bow with me and let's, let's go to this Lord in, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this word that reveals to us so much about your heart, about your nature, your person, your work. It reveals to us much about what it means to be your child, your, your disciple, of how it is that we relate to you and, and how it is that we worship you. But Father, our focus this morning needs to be the revelation of your gracious provision of your own Son, and of your great grace to do what you have done to rescue us, your great and sinful people. Father, this text is wonderful. Father, this text is beyond my ability to explain and to do justice to. Father, remove from me any sense of self-sufficiency, any sense of dependency on my own abilities or my own preparation. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I do believe that we desperately need your help this morning. Father, I pray that you would do a wonderful work through your wonderful word this morning. I do it to glorify your name. I do it to grow our love for your wonderful Son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, point number one, worship is sacrifice. We're starting with this. We're going to spend a little time on this because I don't think we can really understand What's going on here until we can better understand the, the biblical nature of worship? We have been conditioned to think of worship as singing. Right? I want to work on shifting us to think of worship as sacrificing. Because that's what worship was and is. This story is jarring to our modern or our postmodern ears. But this story wouldn't have been as jarring to ancient ears. You see, the ancients understood the necessity of sacrifice. The ancients understood that there was a God or gods and that we must approach them in some way through sacrifice. Every civilization, every religion had some sort of system of sacrifice to the gods. They may have gotten most of it tragically wrong, but they understood that there was a God or gods, that we were not it. And that for us to relate to the gods or receive the blessing of the gods or, or whatever, something had to be done. Some sort of offering had to be made, some sort of mediator to go between, something. And so in many respects, the ancients were wiser than us. The call for Abraham to sacrifice to God would have not been surprising to them. In fact, in his immediate context, the call for Abraham to sacrifice his son to God would not have been that surprising. For this is a somewhat regular occurrence in many of the cultures that would have been surrounding Abraham. As we see very clearly later on in the biblical narrative, as we get to the Canaanite worship of the god Molech. Um, we'll see that frequently. We'll see Israel even get caught up in that. So our first thought is, how could God ask for such a thing? Most people back then, their first thought might have been, well, of course God could ask for such a thing. He's God. And, and yet, what we're going to see is that the thing that many back then would have just assumed and accepted as fairly normal is actually abhorrent to the one true God. And he would never accept the offering of a human sacrifice. That's why the very first verse is so important. God 
tested Abraham. We can't forget that word. Abraham, like Job, doesn't know that God is testing him. That's the whole point. But by alerting us, the readers, of this important fact from the outset, we know that there's actually no possibility of the sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, this is less, I'm going to argue, about the sacrifice of Isaac than it is about the sacrifice of Abraham himself. Will Abraham die to self and take up his cross and follow God? But, but the point is that pagan readers 3,000 years ago wouldn't have had much problem with this command. It would have been a somewhat culturally acceptable practice. Maybe something like the culturally acceptable practice today of offering up children in sacrifice, of murdering babies, right? It's, it's culturally acceptable today. We've, we've just accepted it. Even those of us who claim to be pro-life have just somewhat accepted it. Uh, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent and get myself in trouble, probably, but it's all right. I've cleared out my inbox a little bit. Um, it's okay. I've read a few things uh, recently. It's, it's seen, I've seen Christians increasingly belittle what is now pejoratively called being a single-issue voter, as if that's a bad thing. Again, I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's all right. Everyone's talking about the election. Why shouldn't we? Um, it's coming up in three weeks. Why would we not talk about this? Surely everyone understands that there are certain issues, single issues, that would make it absolutely impossible for you to vote for a candidate, right? We just understand that. We all have those issues. Like, say there's this candidate. He, is, he or she has a wonderful economic platform, all kinds of environmentally wise plans, an actual idea of how to sort out our healthcare mess, intelligent foreign policy, and so on. Just lots of good and brilliant political ideas. But also, by the way, the candidate is clear that if they were elected, they will be committed to the right of anyone to murder redheads. Right? Whenever they want. Killing redheads. Part and part. I asked my wife if I could use this. Part and parcel of their political platform. Right? Surely every single one of us would say, hey, you know, lots of your ideas are pretty good. I, I really like your economic plan. Um, some of these things seem pretty solid. But the fact that you support the murder of people with red hair sort of makes it morally impossible for me to vote for you. Right? I mean, I'm kind of a fan of redheads, right? We all understand that there are certain single issues that would disqualify someone from public office, right? Like we, just, that, we get that, right? As in the support of the murder of redheads, disqualified. We all agree, right? You can't support murdering people and be an effective leader, right? That shouldn't be controversial. Abortion is no different. It's not any different. We've just been convinced and deceived by the world that it's somehow different. But it can't be. Right? We understand this, right? It's murdering people. And there is a candidate that is promising to put no restrictions on the murdering of people who just happen to be inside another person's womb. That is child sacrifice. Surely the support of child sacrifice prohibits someone from public office, right? Again, let me, this is not a plug for the other party. I can't, I, I, you don't have to do what I'm doing. You don't, I, I can't vote for either major candidate. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to do what I do. But can't we all agree that there is something morally reprehensible, morally reprehensible, about someone who runs on a platform centered upon murdering people. Do we get that? That should not be a controversial thing to say among Christians. We'll see if it is. I know that it is a controversial thing to say. Um, Christians, biblically, you better have a very good biblical reason why you're going to vote for someone and say, yes, this person is good and I support what they're doing. 
you have very good biblical reason um, for doing that. So be wise and be biblical. Child sacrifice and murder is what it is. So I'll see if I can get any of you back now uh, for the rest of this sermon. Uh, but it's in three weeks. Here's a text that it somewhat connects. Uh, maybe I wouldn't be doing my job as a minister if I didn't talk about this thing that is sin, which is the murdering of babies um, that somewhat loosely connects uh, to this passage. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong there. Child sacrifice was an accepted practice 3,000 years ago. Child sacrifice is alive and well today. 60 million people murdered. And in this story, where on the surface... It appears that God is commanding that very thing. What's actually going to happen is he's going to turn it on its head. He's going to end up condemning that very thing. God is testing Abraham. Don't forget that first verse. This is not the sacrifice of Isaac. This is the sacrifice of Abraham. This is a test of his faith to demonstrate his faith but more importantly even, is to demonstrate to us the faith. The very meaning of faith itself and the very bedrock on which that faith and our faith is built. And it all revolves around sacrifice. Which I'm going to argue is at the very heart of worship. Look at verse, skip to verse 5. We'll come back and do the details of the earlier verses in a moment. Remember, verse 2, Abraham has been commanded by God to offer Isaac as a burnt offering in verse 2. Abraham goes to do that in verse 5. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, we will go over there, not to sacrifice. He says, we will go over there and worship. Because the two are the same thing. And this is important. This is the first use of the word worship in the scriptures. And the scriptures tell us that worship is sacrifice. We see the same idea. Uh, coming up in the book of Exodus. You know the story. God is going to rescue his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. Why? Why should Pharaoh let my people go? For what purpose? Exodus 3.18. The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. Notice Abraham's is three days. His journey's three days. Here's three days. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He says it again in chapter 5. In chapter 8, Pharaoh tries to come up with some sort of compromise to get Moses to just stay around. Uh, political leaders are always trying to get God's people to compromise with them. Hey, just stay around and sacrifice to Yahweh within the land. Here's something we can both agree to. Moses says, no. Why not? Moses says, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord uh, our God. This is really interesting. The offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So the whole Exodus story is about sacrifice. Why did God deliver his people? So that they may sacrifice. But hold on a second. Have you ever wondered this? Why would the offerings that Israel would sacrifice to the Lord be an abomination to the Egyptians? So much so that they would stone them. That's the first mention of stoning in the Bible, by the way. One ancient historian uh, tells a story of a Roman ambassador who accidentally killed a cat and ended up being torn into pieces by a crazed mob in Egypt. So, again, so this, is, this is serious. Why would what God's people do be an abomination in the sight of not God's people? It's because Israel was going to worship God through the sacrifice of animals. They were going to kill animals. Why is that a problem? Because the Egyptians would have worshipped those animals. And this can help us to start to understand what worship is. The Israelites were to value God above all else. And so they were to be willing then to give up these valuable animals in part as an indication that they valued God above all else. The Egyptians would have been offended by this sacrifice because they valued the animals more than they valued the one true God. 
So they would be will unwilling to offer up the thing they considered to be of superior value, the animals, um, they believed they were gods, for the thing that they didn't even believe in at all, Yahweh, the one true God, whom thus they didn't even then value at all. You see, worship is all about sacrifice. Everyone used to get that, not so much anymore. But why now is it all about sacrifice? Well, it's two pretty simple reasons. It's, it's because God is God and we are not, and it's because God is holy and we are not. Both of those facts, those realities, the existence of God and the holiness of God, demand sacrifice from those who are not God. And that's worship. What is worship? Much more than the singing of songs, as great as that is. Worship is simply the, the right response of the creature to the creator. Or the word used to be worth-ship. Uh, it's developed from worth-ship to worship. Worship is then ascribing worth. We all worship something. Whatever is worth the most to us. Whatever we love and value the most. That's the thing that we worship. And it's not a particularly religious thing or Christian thing. Everybody worships something. And that thing that we worship that we most value, we will then happily sacrifice other things for, right? We will give up that, that which we value less for the gain of that which we value more. I'm happily going to go and give up $3.50 of my money to get a chip cookie today, right? Because I, there's a new one, and it's gooey goodness, and I want it. So I will sacrifice the less valuable three fifty to me to gain the more valuable cookie to me. Right? So I'm willing to give up this because this is superior and I want this. And then the thing that we most value, the thing that we worship, live for, and love, we will ultimately give up everything to gain that thing. That's, that's worship. So worship, simply defined, is supposed to be our response to the person and work of God. It's seeing his worth, his worthiness, his value, and then responding accordingly. And that response will always involve sacrifice. God says, sacrifice your son. Abraham says, we will go over there and worship. Abraham understands the true nature of worship. It's, again, it's very clear that Abraham and Isaac understand. It's not like all of a sudden, like, wait, what do you mean? What, what are we supposed to do? And what is this thing? You know, they've already been worshiping God through this form, through this sacrifice. They know the deal. They, this is not their first time doing this. Abraham understands that worship is always the giving up of one thing to gain another. It is the offering up of an inferior thing for the glory and the gain of a superior thing. In the willing and glad giving up of a thing of value, the worshiper is demonstrating that God is the thing that is most valued. And the God who is most valued, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, the God who is the source and sustainer of existence, the God who is goodness and beauty, the God who is life, is worthy of our very lives. The God who is infinitely and eternally valuable is worthy of the sacrifice of everything else of value. And so this God calls his man to give up his son. The God of infinite value calls his man to give up his son whom he most values as a demonstration that he truly most values God. As he should. As is right and good. Again, this is not about the sacrifice of Isaac, but the sacrifice of Abraham. And worship is sacrifice. It is the only way to rightly respond to God. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. You see, that's a command. That's a demand. God deserves and demands worship. And it is right that he does so. Worship is sacrifice. No sacrifice then. Well, no true worship. And no true worship. Well, then no true relationship with God. So are you a worshiper of God? We'll get to the blood sacrifices in a moment. We're going to get to the main reason why sacrifice is required. We know that we do not offer up animal sacrifices anymore because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But that does nothing to change the fact that worship is still sacrifice. Just like for Abraham, it is ultimately the sacrifice 
of self. We just read it in Romans 12.1. It's the shortest scripture reading we've ever read, um, but I wanted you to read it a couple times. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you see the, the New Testament connection. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. This is your worship. Worship is sacrifice. And that means if you have not presented your body to God as a living sacrifice, well, you're not a worshiper of him. You are not his, and you are not saved. Have you sacrificed yourself? Hey, this is what Jesus himself requires. Luke 14, 26. This is a passage we just kind of excised from American evangelical Bibles. Uh, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, we so quickly think, hey, Jesus bore the cross. Jesus bore the cross so that I would never have to bear a cross. And Jesus specifically says here that you must bear your own cross or you cannot be his disciple. And we would never dare utter these words today. It sounds so legalistic. We would never say, you cannot be his disciple. But Jesus says it three times in that one passage. He says, you cannot be my disciple. We do everything we can to tell people how easy it is that they will just say this prayer or just walk to the front or just do this thing. You can be his disciple. Jesus actually repeats in many, you cannot be my disciple unless three things, unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Again, here's the kicker. Hate your own life. Second, unless you do not bear, unless you bear your own cross and follow him. And then third, he says in verse 23, verse 33, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Unless you renounce, give up, leave behind everything, he says you cannot be my disciple. That's sacrifice. Three times in Luke 14, Jesus says that you cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. This is what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, a Christian. And you cannot be a Christian without these things. This is the sacrifice of the self that God is demanding of Abraham here. He must be willing to give up that which he most values to demonstrate that he most values the most valuable thing, God himself. And that is the only way to relate to the all-glorious and infinitely valuable this is the sacrifice of self. You know, when Jesus says, take up your cross, you know, we, we wear them and we decorate with them and we kind of miss it. And let's be clear, a cross is where you die. Jesus says, unless you die, you cannot be my disciple. Right? It's, the, it's the famous line from, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, I don't know what to do with Bonhoeffer. He writes some really great and brilliant things, but then had all kinds of problems as well. So, this is not an affirmation of everything that he says. But his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is really interesting. He writes before that, Bonhoeffer says, The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Such a man knows the call to discipleship is a gift of grace. We're getting to the grace. Don't worry. We're getting there. And that the call is inseparable from the grace, but those who try to use the grace as an excuse from following Christ, are simply deceiving themselves. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. The cross is not the terrible ending to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. That's a really solid paragraph. There is no Christianity without a, without a cross. We, we know that, right? Christ on the cross is the very foundation of our faith. But Jesus says that anyone who would come after him must also take up his cross and follow him. The sacrifice of the most valuable thing to us, our very selves, to gain the most valuable thing, God himself. 
Again, if this sounds too burdensome or negative or legalistic to you, think of it in terms of the parable of the hidden treasure in the field in Matthew 13. It helps put the right spin on it. Jesus says very shortly and succinctly and masterfully, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, as we talked about this morning, in his joy, he goes and sells all, that's sacrifice, he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Right? You find an invaluable, none of us have yards, so this doesn't make as much sense, but you find an invaluable treasure in your yard, right? No one will have to convince you to get rid of everything you have. To get rid of everything that is comparatively of little value if it gains you something of infinitely more valuable value, right? We get that. We get the guys like, hey, there's a ton of treasure here. All I have to do is give up a few thousand bucks to gain billions of dollars. I will joyfully make that sacrifice. No, it's just, it's just common sense. Right? We would make this exchange willingly and happily. That's what this worship as sacrifice is. God, by grace, opens our eyes to see him as infinitely more valuable than any treasure in a field. The kingdom is the treasure. He is the treasure. And therefore, he is worth whatever it costs. And we will pay whatever it costs because he is worth the sacrifice of everything because he is everything. And that is how we most honor and glorify, how we worship him through sacrifice. So God does not ask worshipers to give that which they do not value. He doesn't. He does not ask us to give that which costs us nothing, that which we do not love. We demonstrate what we love by what we're willing to give up to gain it. Have you sacrificed anything to gain God? If you profess to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, have you taken up his challenge in Luke chapter 14? Do you comparatively hate everything else in comparison to him? Have you taken up your cross, died to yourself? Have you renounced everything? And Jesus says, hey, I'm just telling you what Jesus says. He says, if you have not done that, you cannot be his disciple. Church, here's, we cannot simply live as everyone else lives except that we get up and go to church for an hour on Sundays. That, that just can't be what it means to be a Christian. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and love the world and live exactly like the world and respond to everything exactly like the world and do everything like the world. Watch the same things that the world watches. Loves the same thing that the world watches. Well, except, you know, we spend an hour at church on Sunday. So, hey guys, Christianity costs something which we should expect because it gains everything. God sacrificed his most treasured possession, his own son, to gain his people. His people respond to his sacrifice with sacrifice. The sacrifice of laying down their lives to gain him, he who is life. True worship is always sacrificial worship. It is really humbling and convicting to me. We can't even get to church on time. We can't even give up one evening of an hour of our time because, we, hey, these are our seven free evenings. And, you know, how could you ask for another evening of, you know, some of the time to give to this thing? I've done my hour at church. Do, do we really sacrifice anything for this thing that we say is the most important thing? Are our lives in any way a reflection of the infinite sacrifice that God has made to gain us? His people. True worship is always sacrificial worship. In offering the first and the best to God, the worshiper is demonstrating that he finds God to be the first and the best. In offering the first and the best, the worshiper is demonstrating submission to God and obedience to God, which is itself an act of worship. Point number two, much shorter. Let's, let's run through this. Faith is obedience. This is directly connected to the previous point, so we won't need long. Faith is obedience. Now, is that quite right? Faith is obedience? Let's see, let me, let's, let's be careful here. I'll be clear up front. All right, obedience does not save us, right? We know that. We don't sacrifice to be saved. Uh, grace 
saves us. God saves us. Not what we do, but what He has done in Christ. And then we access that by faith. And we know that, but we don't often know this. We run so quickly to that that we sometimes have a tendency to miss this, that there is an intimate, unbreakable connection between faith and obedience. That there cannot be faith without obedience. And that then, in a very real sense, again, speaking carefully, faith is obedience. Romans 4.16, Abraham is held up for us there in the New Testament as the father of faith. He's the example for us of what it means to believe. Abraham believed in God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul has just explained how it's not works. It's not anything we do. Let me show you how it's even that case in the Old Testament. Here's Abraham. He is the father of all who believe. So again, to be clear, we are saved by faith alone. Or better yet, next point, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Prepositions matter. Get your prepositions right. And so Abraham, Old Testament saint, saved in the same way as New Testament saints. Romans 4, he believed God. That's faith. It is trustful belief in God. But what does that faith do? How does that faith then demonstrate itself? This is pretty interesting. In Hebrews chapter 11, what we often refer to as the hall of faith, of which Abraham's the star. Abraham gets the most ink. And I know God's the star, but of the human God, Abraham is the main character there. He gets the most ink in the chapter. What's the first thing that's said about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11? Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Faith is obedience. Again, if you want to be more careful, obedience always follows faith. Faith always works itself out in obedience. We've seen the big idea of the text. Worship is sacrifice. Uh, maybe that'll help us understand what's really going on here. But let's run through the details very quickly. I don't want to ignore the text. Get, go back to the text now. We did a lot from verse 5. Let's run through the details. Let's see what it's emphasizing here. Verse 1. God calls Abraham to test Abraham. Abraham's response. Here I am. Notice, one of the work that said, but notice that three times Abraham says this in the story. One, seven, and eleven. Those are important points. One, seven, and eleven. Abraham responds, here I am. Immediate response. Obedient response. It is prompt, unquestioning obedience that characterizes this whole account. The specifics of the command come in verse two. And notice how it's Drawn out. Notice the repetition that is, that is heightening the tension, that is heightening the drama of what is required. Your son, your only son. Keep in mind, this is coming after 21. Ishmael is cast out. There is no other son. There is only one now. Isaac is everything. Nothing else. Everything hinges on Isaac. Your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And again, let's be clear. A burnt offering. You would take the offering, generally an animal, you would slice the throat of the animal that was to be offered, and then it would bleed out, and it would bleed to death, and make an ugly, gross mess. And then you would take the animal, and then place it, uh, the entire offering, on the altar, and it's a whole burnt offering, and then the whole thing would be consumed in flame. That is what Abraham is being commanded to do by God in verse 2. Abraham's response, verse 3. Prompt obedience. Now think about that back in the end of 18. Think about Abraham's response to God's revelation of what he's going to do in um, Sodom and Gomorrah. The discussion, the dialogue, the, the back and forth. None of that here. Verse 3. Abraham rises early the next morning. I would have slept late. Abraham gets up early. He gets the donkey. He gets the two servants. He gets his son. He cuts the wood for the offering and goes immediately to the place God had told him. This is the bookend of the Abraham narrative. You know, I almost really stopped here. We could make a good case for stopping here. 12.1, God comes, God calls. Abraham, go from your country and your family. Abraham, give up everything and go. 22.2, God comes, God calls. Abraham, take your son and go. Give up everything and go. This is the conclusion that this is the bookend of the narrative. Everything else is just details. Abraham goes, verse 4. On the third day, they arrive. We've read verse 5. Abraham leaves his two servants behind. 
Again, the servants serve a strange function in this narrative, right? In writing, um, I'm really good at reading about writing, but not writing. I read a lot about writing. In writing, you are regularly reminded that you always introduce characters and objects for a purpose. And if you introduce something, you must use it. Well, here, these two are introduced in the narrative only to take no part in the narrative. Why? I, mean, I, just think, I think it probably just it, it compounds the sense of Abraham's isolation. He must leave everything and everyone behind. He is alone. He is on his own. And notice also, who doesn't show up at all in this narrative? There's no Sarah here. Not even mentioned. It is the father. It is the federal head. It is the representative that must act and act alone. But look at verse 5. Catch the little hint in verse 5. He's going to sacrifice, which he calls worship, because worship is sacrifice. But there, then he says, I and the boy will do that and come again to you. Implication, well, I and the boy will come again to you. There's, there's a, a hint of hope, some sort of flicker of faith. Verse 6, what a brutal scene. Abraham takes the wood and lays it on Isaac, only to take Isaac and lay him on the wood. In verse 9, the drama is being effectively heightened. Abraham carries the instruments of his own son's death and demise in his hands. He has the fire. He has the knife. Wood, fire, knife. Everything needed to worship. Except, verse 7, Isaac sees it. My father. And he said, here I am, my son. And you, know, you, can, you can, I mean, it just bleeds through. You can feel the relationship. Right? You, you can feel the love and the trust. My father, my son. And Isaac says, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? How can we sacrifice without something to sacrifice? Verse 8. And don't miss this. Here's where we get the key word in the whole narrative. Here's why the narrative is here. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering myself. That's the point of this story, right there. God will provide. It's a beautiful statement. It's also a brilliant statement. It's ambiguous enough to leave room for what Abraham is about to do. But at the same time, absolutely unambiguous in its faith in God. Abraham is leaving things entirely in God's hands. He is utterly dependent, utterly obedient to God's plans. And so in verse 9, Abraham constructs the altar. You can just imagine. He is constructing. He's journeyed for three days, knowing what he was going to have to do. Right? The, now he's constructing piece by piece the altar, the place of his son's destruction. And notice how it's agonizingly drawn out. Can you imagine? And then he binds his son. In Judaism, this whole narrative is referred to as the Akita. The Akita. Uh, my pronunciation is poor. Uh, but it's just, that's the Hebrew word binding. This is the binding of Isaac. That's how they refer to it. He binds his son. And keep in mind, we're, we're at least 10 years after chapter 21. We don't know exactly where we are. But Isaac's at least a teenager or, or a young man. Abraham is an old man. Uh, young man Isaac allows old man Abraham uh, to bind him and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. So it's very tempting to construct Isaac as a sort of Christ figure here. He's not, actually. He's the one who needs the substitute. Um, so let's make sure we, we get the connections correct. Verse 10. Abraham reaches out his hand, takes the knife to slaughter his son. Stop. God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering, and Abraham obeys. Listen, the text isn't concerned to answer all the existential questions we have about what's going on here and what's going on in Abraham's mind. It doesn't care. It just doesn't. The text primarily wants to convey to us the promptness of Abraham's obedience. Because faith is obedience, or there is no faith without obedience. In the midst of that long Bonhoeffer quote I, I pulled apart out, he adds and writes, only the obedient believe. That's a great statement. Only the obedient 
believe. You cannot divorce the two. You cannot claim to believe God and then not obey God. Because obedience is part and parcel of the nature of true faith. This is, again, what Jesus himself says. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We talk all about loving God, as we should. But what does that mean? What does it entail? Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I don't know, Jesus. Are you sure? That kind of sounds like legalism. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You sure, Jesus? Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Well, but we just have to abide in you, Jesus, right? We just have to abide in your love. Chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you love Jesus, you obey Jesus. Jesus is pretty clear about that. James is also pretty clear about that. In chapter 2, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He is not saying in any way that we are saved by works. There is no contradiction between Paul and James. James goes on to say that faith shows itself by works. Faith works. Faith obeys. Faith is obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. Can you say in any way that you are obeying God? I know you're not perfectly. Okay, I know that. I'm not either. The sin and the struggle reign. But if you profess to be a believer, one of this faith, is your life marked by increasing obedience to the will and the word of this God? Is your faith demonstrating yourself, demonstrating itself in obedience to his good law? Is there growing desire uh, to grow in obedience to his good law? Obedience always follows faith, often slowly, often imperfectly. But what we're seeing here with Abraham is that God's people obey God. It's just that simple. We shouldn't have to qualify that statement. God's people obey God. He is God. We are not. He is wise. We are not. He knows. He declares the end from the beginning. We do not. And so he commands, we obey. He commands Abraham, and Abraham obeys. Faith obeys. Simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's easy as all at all. That doesn't mean we will always perfectly understand. And that's in part what this story is here for. Yeah, haven't, haven't we all experienced occasions when God's ways do not seem to line up with God's words? Right. Haven't we all experienced that? When God's ways, maybe even from our perspective, seem to contradict God's word? That's what Abraham is experiencing here. And yet, the man of faith obediently raises the knife. Because faith is trust. It is believing God. It is taking God at his word, regardless of appearances, regardless of circumstances. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust and obey. That's faith. And faith is obedience. But, last and quick point, you run through it real fast. Here's the real point of the story. And here's the real climax and highlight. None of that makes any sense without this. Here's the point of the Abraham narrative. Yes, worship is sacrifice. Yes, faith is obedience. But that's only because first, grace is provision of substitutionary sacrifice. All of that is dependent upon it in response to this. Verse 1, Abraham. Verse 11, Abraham, Abraham. Note the urgency, the repetition. One name, twice, and note who is speaking, the angel of the Lord. Oh, that's so fascinating. You can't get into it. Remember who the angel of the Lord is, who is speaking. And Abraham immediately and obediently responds again, here I am. Verse 12, wonderful verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from 
You see, now this is not this is no surprise to us, the readers. We know, we've known from verse one that there was no risk to the boy. And we know that this test wasn't, again, for the benefit of God's knowledge, but for Abraham's knowledge and our knowledge. This is not revealing something to God, but to Abraham and to us. It is a demonstration of his faith, and it is a demonstration to us of the very nature of faith. This is the evidence. It's James chapter 2. It's faith showing itself by works. James even goes on to specifically apply that to this story in verses 21 and 22 of James 2, when he says that Abraham's offering up of Isaac, in it, his faith was active along with his works. His faith was completed, fulfilled, shown by his works. God has shown that Abraham is a man who fears Are you a man or a woman who fears God? For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. Thomas Watson, the fear of the Lord is the sum of all true religion. Watson says God is so great that the Christian is afraid of displeasing him. And so good that he is afraid of losing him. Do you fear the Lord? Abraham did. And so he was willing to give up everything even when he didn't understand everything. But he understood enough. Abraham has certainty about the person and the nature of God. Abraham trusts this God completely. He is sure of God, but he is not sure of his method. He knows that God always keeps his word, but he doesn't know exactly how he is going to do it. He shows, he believes in verse 5, that he and the boy will some way, somehow, return. How? Again, it doesn't really tell us. Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us a hint where it says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, the New Testament speaks as if Abraham did make the sacrifice. Right? He did. In faith, he had done it in his mind. He was ready to give it up um, for God. And it was because, in some way, Abraham knew what God had promised. And he knew the God who had made the promise. He knew that this God of perfect faithfulness had said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he didn't know how, but he knew who. And so he trusted the Lord. And he feared the Lord. And God delivered. God provided. That's the point of the story. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. That's the point. The point is provision. What does he provide? A ram as a burnt offering instead of Abraham's son. That's a substitute. God provides a substitutionary sacrifice. He provides a substitutionary death. And that's first and foremost, circling all the way back to the beginning, why worship is and must be sacrifice. Because Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why we can only worship God through sacrifice. Because we have separated ourselves from this God through sin. And he told us from the beginning, the day you sin, you will surely die. The God of perfect purity and goodness cannot abide with sin. He is the God of life. Sin rejects the God of life, and in so doing, sin accepts the consequence of death. Dead, sinful man cannot approach living, holy God, except through sacrifice, except through a substitute. The wages of sin is death. Blood is symbolic of life. Blood must be shed then for there to be forgiveness. The giving of a life in the place of the life that we owed for our sin. The payment of the debt that we owed for our sin. But what we see here in this passage from the very beginning, we're only in the, I can't even remember, 22nd chapter of the book, and we're seeing it from the very beginning. 
hears the gospel, that it is God himself who provides the payment. God demands the payment. His holiness requires that there be a payment, but God's mercy provides the payment himself. Abraham gets it. God will provide for himself the lamb. Isaac doesn't die. The ram dies instead of Isaac, in the place of Isaac. Isaac is not the Christ figure. The ram is the Christ figure. As the ram dies as his substitute, Isaac needs a substitute. Isaac is us. The ram is Christ. The ram dies so that Isaac can live. And church, that's the gospel. That's what this is pointing to. That's the good news. That on another mountain, we don't have time for it. It's maybe this same mountain. We see Moriah again as the site of where Solomon constructs uh, the temple. Um, maybe the same mountain, 3,000 years later, another father would lay his son on the wood of the altar of sacrifice, but this time there would be no one to stay his hand. There would be no stay of execution. There would be no substitute, because this one was the substitute. He, the son, the seed, was God's provision of substitutionary sacrifice. Our sins separated us from God. Something had to be done. This was the thing. This is the only thing. This was the death that we owed. This is God providing that death for us in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what grace is. Jesus is what grace is. He is the provision of the substitute that dies in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is what God is doing always. He is what God is doing in the whole story of Abraham. And this climax of the story of Abraham is less about Abraham. Yes, he obeys. Yes, he worships. But it's ultimately about the God who provides for his people. And his ultimate provision for his people is the substitutionary death of his son in their place so that they could be forgiven, raised to new life, and restored to relationship with him because he is life. And so it's the infinite value of this sacrifice that makes us willing and desirous to joyfully offer any sacrifice, our own selves, to him. We, sacrifice, we don't sacrifice in the same way. The payment has been made. No more blood sacrifices. Um, but now we offer our very selves to the God who offered his very son. We love because he first loved us. We sacrifice for him because he first sacrificed for us. And it's the infinite goodness of his sacrifice that makes us willing and desirous to joyfully obey him by faith. In church, you may not always know what or how, but through this and through God's word, you can always know who. And this story shows us the who, the God of all goodness, and grace. He is the one who calls to us and commands us, but his word is always good. And as we increasingly see that goodness in stories like these, and then ultimately at the cross, we increasingly long to obey him, to, to, to be like him, and to be with him forever, all rooted first here in this grace. Church, the Lord will provide. The Lord has provided. Look to Jesus. Love him. Worship him. Obey him. Let's pray. Father, I'm very thankful for your word. Father, I'm very thankful for the privilege that it is to be able to stand here and preach and proclaim your word. Father, I cannot do that apart from you. <clears throat> My words are done. Your word remains. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit now, you would work on our hearts uh, through your word. Father, anything that I have said that was unhelpful or untrue, I pray that you would set aside. Father, I pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds on your gracious provision of a son, on your gracious provision of a substitutionary death and sacrifice that we did not seek or earn or merit. Father, you came after us you loved us, and you sent your son to die for us so that we could live. Father, show us, teach us, reveal to us a little bit more the nature of your goodness, the beauty of the gospel, and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ.
Father, I simply pray that you would use this word to increase our love for him and help us to see your amazing sacrifice for us. Father, so that we would not legalistically or grudgingly then worship you through sacrifice or follow you through obedience, but we would do it joyfully, Father, because of who you are and because of what you've done. So, Father, grab us with your grace. Show us your beauty so that we would love you and long to live for you and to follow you. Father, we are not our own, for we are bought with a price. So pray that we as your people would honor you with our bodies and with our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray and ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.